Okay, guys, this is lesson five in our series. We're sort of ha- we're halfway point uh, in, our, in our series on t- conflict resolution and peacemaking, uh, something that we've said is so, so fundamental to our Christian life, so important, and we've been given even re- reasons for this, why this series, I think, is, is so critical for us as believers. But one that I haven't mentioned is that uh, I, I think that this is so, so important that it's when my... Uh, my children, those who are those who are married, when when they were thinking about a, a potential spouse, uh, there there were only really a few things that I believed that they should be looking for in in another person. And so these are just things that we, you know, you try to not make that list too long. You know, like you're teaching your kids, here's what's to look for. You don't want to overload them with 25 things. You want to try to get that list down as as small as possible, as short as possible. And so for us, the list was pretty short. You know, we just said, you need to be looking for a growing Christian, right? Not just someone that's a Christian in name only, but someone that is is growing in their faith, someone that's committed to the scripture as the final authority uh, for their their life, uh, sort of an authoritative guide for their life, which is demonstrated in lots of ways, but just through wise living, decisions regarding friends and time and sexuality and work and those types of things. So just do they, do they look through, do they, do they view life through a biblical lens? Such an such a important thing as you go through married life because you have an opinion, your spouse has an opinion, but what really matters is what does God have to say about this particular issue? And so you want to marry someone that you believe will, that will allow Scripture to trump their personal view or opinion. If it's, if it's not biblical, you want the Scripture to override that. So uh, the authority of Scripture, biblical roles of men and women, you know, there would be some, some understanding and practicing of those roles. Um, the guy demonstrating servant leadership, the, the young lady demonstrating, um, you know, aspects of, of respectful submission. Commitment to the local church is a big one, just their understanding of of the church and being an active part of a gospel-centered church and really seeing the church as something that is central to their life, not just some appendage, not just something that they kind of tag on to their life, but that they're, they're, they really see their relationship as so integrated with the life of, of the church. So those are just four things, growing Christian, biblical roles, men and women, the local church, scriptural authority, and then I would say the fifth thing, if you just had to condense it down to just five, number five would need to be that they need to demonstrate the ability to resolve conflicts. Because um, you can, and Kelly and I are actually doing this right now. We're meeting with a couple for premarital marital counseling. You don't have to have many sessions in premarital counseling to realize people, they're different, right? They have all these different perspectives, different backgrounds uh, with their families and different beliefs and all that. And they're going to continue to have those things and express those things. But the question is, can they resolve uh, conflict? You know, do they have the, do they understand the principles to be able to do that? Um, so we ask young couples questions about arguments. You know, how many arguments have you had? Some, of course, some couples that are in premarital counseling say they don't have arguments, right? You know, everything's great. Wonderful, you know. I love this person. Uh, we get along. I mean, I, I, you know, we don't we don't see things that differently. And so sometimes we have to tell them, as a homework assignment, that they need to have an, a conflict for homework. Like, go have a fight this week about something, 
because we need to know how you handle that. And so we're kind of right in the middle of that with this, this young couple of talking about specific situations and then, okay, what, what were you thinking and what, what, why did you say that and how should you have responded? Because we want, we want to learn, you know, how do, they, how do they see these things? How do they work through them? Uh, no guarantee that they're going to do that, you know, carry out those patterns later on, but, but hopefully so uh, if, they're, if they're biblical, uh, bib- biblical patterns. So you have, you know, color of hair, color of skin, how long they've been a Christian, the whole issue of attraction, those kind I mean, those are all important things to, to consider and to think about, but I think those five are, for me, sort of the core things. And, and again, you can, add, you can add to it, right? You can have six, you can have ten, but I think at some point you just, it, you're just getting into issues of preference, and, and that's fine. If you want to have a long list of things, you just have to realize that you're going Every, everything that you put on that list, right, you're going to narrow, the pond gets smaller and smaller the more things you have on there. But those are some of, I think, the, the, non, uh, the non-negotiables. So uh, the ground we've covered so far, well, we've defined conflict in a, in a very broad way. We've said that conflict is what happens when you're at odds with another person over uh, what you think, you want, or do. So there's a clash of ideas or, expectation or, or expectations or desires. Or we've said it this way, your agenda doesn't line up with their agenda, okay? And, and that doesn't mean, it doesn't have to be macro, right? It doesn't have to be in the big things. It's just in the moment, right? I mean, you can have a lot of agreement in some of those bigger areas and even the, the, the direction of life you're going in. But we're talking about in real time, in a specific moment, what they want and, and what they expect and what you want and what you expect, those don't line up. And, and then there you have it, right? You have this, this opportunity, um, this difference that comes up, and, of course, you have a choice to make at that point. The, di- point, the, dif- the difference doesn't have to lead to disaster, but unfortunately what happens a lot of times is our, right, I mean, our pride and our, pre- our prejudice and our selfishness and all those things are in the mix, and so that disagreement kind of goes downhill from there, right? And so it's not just about uh, this problem between their agenda and our agenda, but as we've said more deeply, it, it can be a conflict between God's agenda and our agenda. Uh, we've also identified various causes of conflict or looked at specific examples of situations that led to conflict in the, in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, so far, we've looked at four of these. Uh, the first one was God-given diversity. We just looked at 1 Corinthians briefly and talked about how that leads, can lead to natural differences in the body of Christ. Uh, the second one was simple misunderstandings that stem from our failure to communicate. Uh, just as an example of that, okay, we, we, we ordered some pens this week. Some of you may have seen this on, on a, um, on, I guess this got out on Facebook, but we ordered, I always order pens for our counseling conference in the spring and we got this little advertisement at the church office for these specially printed pens. And I thought, well, we're going to have to buy those anyway. So I was like, let's just go ahead and jump on the steals. Half of what I would have been paying for years for these things. So let's go ahead and order those. And we'll just put the church logo on it so it doesn't say anything about counseling. We can use them at the church. We can use them at the conference. And so I think Kevin corresponded with them and said, hey, can we just... Instead of putting a line, just, t- just type print, can we just send you a file with our logo and just put the logo on there? Yeah, do that. So send that to Claudia, 
And so then in the little line, when we did the online order, we typed in, see artwork sent to Claudia. So that they would see the artwork and they would put the artwork on here. And so we've got, if you want a free pen, just... It's a great writing pen. It's got a little stylus on the very end there. But rather than say faithcommunitychurch.org, it says, see artwork sent to Claudia. And we have 750 of these. So if, if we weren't living in a fallen world, that would not have happened, right? Miscommunication. Just one small, another small example of that. So anyway, we, the pen, they're sending us 750 more, hopefully with the logo on them. And we, don't, and we didn't have to pay for that batch, but they didn't want them back. So um, anyway. All right. Simple misunderstandings. Number three, man-made preferences, which has to do with establishing our unity and our fellowship on the basis of personal preferences or cultural issues rather than on our union with Christ or partnership in the gospel. So we're talking mostly here about gray areas or our use of Christian liberty, uh, which we'll come back to the, this particular issue at the end of the series. Uh, number four, this is, uh, we looked at this the last time, authority issues. Uh, sometimes it's a failure to exercise authority. Um, it can be the... the um, a failure of leaders to, to be decisive um, or, or a failure to give a specific leadership or vision uh, as well as failing to delegate authority to others. Uh, all those would sort of fall under that. Uh, sometimes it's an abuse of authority, which involves a leader being self-willed rather than being a servant, sort of insisting on uh, his or her own way or being overbearing and not showing mercy. And then the, the last one was the right of authority, which has to do with the problem of people undermining the leaders that God has established, uh, the ones that God has given the responsibility to lead the people. So um, being unsubmissive toward church authority, people sl- slandering God's leaders uh, or rejecting those with a proven track record of faithfulness in, in ministry, all in an effort to gain influence or power or control. Uh, so let's cover these final two uh, this morning. The four, fourth, um, or say the fifth cause of conflict, let's just call this divided allegiances. Uh, divided allegiances, which would go hand in hand with the issues of the right to authority. Uh, so what we're, what we're talking about here is the conflict that sometimes arises over who we are going to follow. Uh, you may remember what Absalom, King, uh, King David's son, did to promote uh, this, these divided allegiances. In that particular case, the Second Samuel chapter 15 says it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. And he used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment... Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. 
Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has any suit or, or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment so that Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. So not only was Absalom not recognizing or appreciating David's, David's work, but he was intentionally undermining it for the sake of his own authority. And the result, of course, was enormous, enormous conflict in, in Israel. Uh, sometimes this kind of problem just surfaces when Christian men and women simply give loyalty to certain people based upon things like personality or, or teaching styles. Uh, in fact, we, you could even call this conflict that erupts over competing styles or competing personalities. Of course, love, commitment, uh, loyalty to one another is not necessarily a bad thing, but in the end, we, we often forget that the Spirit is at work in other people, even if that work in them is not yet complete. So it's just, uh, we're, we're different. We, we have different personalities, styles, we're at different places even in our own sanctification. So you can have leaders and teachers in a church that are just at different places. They're all qualified leaders, but they're just at different places spiritually. And so sometimes it's just that we're not appreciating the Spirit of God's work in those individuals in those different ways. Uh, in, the church, in the church, sometimes the conflict, this type of con- conflict comes when we exalt a particular ministry or program or event and we choose to not recognize or appreciate how the Lord is working through another ministry or program in the church. And so what happens is we fail to give the support and encouragement that Christian love would command us to show those people involved in that ministry. And so what happens in church sometimes is that we just get, um, we just like certain things, right? I mean, we gravitate to certain things in the church. We appreciate certain kinds of ministries in the church or certain kinds of programs in the church. And we sort of get on this, this track and we don't often look over there and see what else is going on in the church, right? So we're plugged into this ministry, but we may not be mindful of that other ministry that a lot of people are involved in and love. And so when that thing comes up, we don't really show appreciation. We don't sometimes even think about serving, right? So we get very, we kind of get pigeonholed and we get on this little rut of this is what I do and this is what I'm gifted to do and this is what I love to do. And a lot of times we're just not willing to, when someone says, hey, we need help over here, right? In this other thing, we'll say, well, I just, that's not my thing. And I'm saying, well, that, that's, that's, that's not right. I mean, right? I mean, we, we've got to, to see those needs and sometimes we so the, the right thing to do is to step up um, and, and to assist, but that kind of thing happens a lot. And uh, hurt feelings, of course, come, pride comes, competition comes, and, and conflict results. Uh, that was, of course, the kind of conflict that was happening in the church at Corinth, these kinds of, of divisions. You want to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, these, these types of divisions and schisms and, and factions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So it's hard, you know, you read these things, you're trying to put, sort of piece together what's going on here. And we know that, that uh, 1 Corinthians is just is sort of laid out this way where you get the sense that Paul is, is answering questions or objections as he's kind of going through and addressing different topics. But this issue of, of disunity, really, that theme sort of uh, that thread goes throughout the letter, and you're kind of trying to figure out what's going on in this church sort of historically, what's, what's the background, what's the context. But evidently, people or groups of individuals in the church were claiming special attachment to various leaders, prominent leaders. Uh, each group maybe having its own particular emphasis. It could have been an emphasis on maybe a particular doctrine or maybe an emphasis on the way that each one of these men were doing their ministry, just the way in which they would carry out their ministry or perhaps even how they would function in their various gifts. First um, Corinthians 3, chapter 6 and following uh, possibly suggests that. The bottom line is, uh, the bottom line is, that in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul will say, he, he writes this in, in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for, for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. In other words, various members of the church were according to Paul, were exalting themselves. Supposing their wisdom paralleled maybe their renowned leaders, in some cases even Christ himself, supposing that they had some special advantage through uh, that particular relationship that they had with a, a leader in the church. Some of those saying, I am of Paul. So you think about Paul's emphasis to the Gentiles, and so these could have been maybe Gentiles in the church that would have been more uh, likely to maybe attach themselves to, to Paul. Maybe they were those who were led to faith in Christ by Paul himself. Um, you've got those who are saying, I'm of Apollos. Now, Apollos was from Alexandria. He was a Jew. Uh, but Alexandria was well known for its universities and libraries. And so we, we assume that Apollos was, was an eloquent speaker. speaker. He was a, a very well-educated person. The book of Acts records that he was mighty in the Scriptures, um, and he was a teacher who came to Corinth after Paul had left. So perhaps a group of the more well-educated Corinthians were his followers because of that eloquence. Um, so you have that sort of group in the church. Then you've got those who are saying, I am of Cephas, which is Peter's... Uh, Aramaic name. Uh, in fact, except for Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul preferred to use this name to refer to, to Peter. So this, this party or faction in the church may have been made up of Jews from Jerusalem, 
Maybe they were those who were baptized by Peter or those who were attracted by Peter's primary emphasis on the Jews. Um, And then there are those who were saying, I I am of Christ, which is interesting. We certainly would say Christ was a prominent prominent leader in the early church, right? But it could have been those who had direct contact with Christ when Christ was ministering. So maybe they had this, uh, maybe they had been under Jesus's ministry or may have claimed to recognize some special emphasis of Christ that the apostles lacked. So maybe it was just something that Jesus was emphasizing in his teaching that people felt like the apostles themselves maybe weren't putting enough emphasis on this thing. So whatever this connection, these groups were, were using these leaders to assert their personal superiority. And you really don't... this. The full picture of that really isn't clear until you get to chapter 4, verse 6. And what, what you find is that their claim to this superior spirituality was really a sham. Because, Paul says, it's not grounded in humility or self-abasement. It's really grounded in self-exaltation. So some in the church were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And to all this, Paul responds and calls for unity and identification with Christ. In fact, he says this back in chapter 113, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he's just saying by by mentioning, I mean, when when you're talking about being baptized in the name of someone... You know, you you were essentially identifying with that person as the source of of truth. Uh, So so Paul's talking about the foolishness of identifying yourself by the name of of really any man. Because we cannot make a man the source of truth. Ultimately, that would be to replace your allegiance to Christ with the allegiance to that man. Paul's just saying, listen, you you can't do that. Your, Your convictions have got to be tied to the doctrine of Christ, and your allegiance has to be to Christ alone. So Paul baptized. We know that. It's not as if Paul didn't baptize. He did that, but Paul never intended to start some sort of private uh, cult of people personally baptized by him. He was called to preach the gospel and bring people to oneness in Christ, not to baptize a faction around himself. So Paul's statement here is simply that Christ is not divided, and Paul is not the Savior, right? No human leader, not even an apostle, should be given the loyalty that belongs only to the Lord. And that kind of of elevated thinking leads only to disputes and contention and a divided church. So Christ is not divided, and neither is his body. So this issue of divided allegiances was going on in the Church of Corinth. Of course, you see this in other places um, in, in, the, in the New Testament. And then, of course, we, we can see it all through church history, this, this problem that still, still continues to plague even uh, the church today. So that's one. Uh, and then there's this last category. This would be the sixth and the, I would say the final cause of conflict, or at least the sixth and final one on our list. Uh, there, there are other examples. You, you know, you could... We haven't covered every single thing the Scripture has to say about where these things um, come from, but this is 
I think this list of six things covers most of them. And this last one, we'll just call it personal issues. Personal issues, which, is, which I know is a big, that's a big category. Um, it, it does encompass the largest portion of conflicts. These are, these are conflicts that are the result of personal sin, uh, and these occur in every every part of your life, right? This goes on in the church. This is church relationships. This is relationships on the job. This is these are friendships, uh, family relationships, conflicts that are constantly happening in the lives of people in the church as as well in the lives of its leaders. And as a leader, these are the conflicts that I spend the most time addressing in the lives of of church members, counseling them through these things and on how to handle those who have offended them, mediating conflicts, sometimes confronting individuals and in, in calling them to repentance. Um, and, of course, the Scriptures give a, a abundant instruction to us regarding these kinds of, of conflicts. One of the passages, we've just sort of t- alluded to this along the way, but we want to drill into this a little bit more, is, is James, James chapter 3. So if you want to hang a right, go over to James 3. Uh, J- James describes for us two, two ways of life, or uh, you might say two, two kinds of wisdom. Uh, there is a true wisdom that is from heaven, and then there is a, a pseudo-wisdom that is from earth. Uh, even We might even say it's even from the evil one. And James mentioned this, mentions this in James 3. Uh, he asked this question. This is down in verse 13. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly natural, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. James says there, there is the way of life marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's the kind of logic that says, I have to take care of myself. Right? I, I have to look out for myself. I have to look out for my own interests. If I don't do that, nobody else is going to do it for me. Uh, if I don't do that, I won't get what I want. I must get what I want. I must get what I deserve. But these kinds of of envious thoughts and selfishness only lead to boasting, quarreling, criticism of rivals, grasping for for influence and power, those kinds of things. Uh, Ambition and envy, James says, breed restlessness and chaos and instability and confusion. On the other hand, James says that anyone who is wise and understanding shows it by his good life, by deeds that reflect true wisdom. So true wisdom, James tells us, is gentle and it's meek, humble, it's, it's long-suffering, it's, it's slow to take offense. 
and very different from the miserable fruit that comes from earthly wisdom, the fruit is blessed that comes from heavenly wisdom. So he says true, true wisdom leads to peace. A true wisdom leads to fair-minded and considerate solutions. It leads to a willingness to get along with others and to defer to others where appropriate, to cooperate. He says true wisdom leads to deeds of mercy and good fruits, which leads to a robust and and well-rounded faith and ultimately a unified church. So it's sort of, it, it, it is, he's dealing with both, I think. He's dealing with what goes on individually, but he's certainly not, not neglecting that aspect of, of corporate body life. So if those things are going on in our hearts throughout the week, day to day, moment by moment, we're living out what James describes here as true wisdom, then certainly when we come together, right, that's what you would see sort of across the board, right, as a a collective group. So he simply says, if if earthly wisdom brings strife, the wise man brings unity and peace, and righteousness flourishes when God's people seek peace. That's why he ends this, he says in verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who who make peace. So in verse 13 of chapter 3, James poses this question, who among you is wise and understanding? And then in chapter 4, verse 1, still attempting to expose the dangers of pride and envy and hypocrisy and selfish ambition, he asks another question. He says there in verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members, which connects back to the disorder and every evil thing that comes from selfish ambition and envy. So he's not, you know, in my Bible, it's unfortunate because chapter four, you turn, it's chapter three ends and then you have to turn the page. And then it's chapter four. And a lot of times people just dive into chapter four or they stop at the end of chapter three. But the idea, these things in James's mind are, are, are connected. So the stuff he just talked about, this worldly, demonic wisdom, this pseudo-wisdom that ultimately leads to disorder and every evil thing, he's going on from that and just continues to talk about conflicts and fights and quarrels. This word, word for quarrels is a word for war. Um, this term for conflicts is really a word for disputes or arguments. So the idea here is that he's, he's using really a, a, a broad term, sort of conflict in general, and then getting down to the specific manifestations of that. So whether small or great, James is saying, whether it's ongoing hostility or brief outbursts of antagonism, James says there are fights among you because of pleasures or passionate desires for worldly pleasure that are at war within you or literally in, in your members. Not referring to members of the church. So he's not saying that there are fights among you because there are things at war within the body of, of, of like between members. That's, no, that's the among you. <laughs> 
what he's saying is that there are, there are fights and quarrels among you because there's a war going on in you. Selfish passions, pleasures are in conflict within. And that's what causes the conflicts among, right? Between people is it's this internal conflict, envy and selfish ambition creating, if you, if you think of it, is, is like a battle within us. And when that happens, this the way it's played out in our Christian lives is that those things, when we pursue those things, they begin to disrupt relations outside of us. And quarrels and fights break out in the church and in, in families. So he's just saying, when you see disorder and every evil thing, and you see mass war, war going on on a, on, a, on, a, on a big scale, or you see battles taking place in specific moments, just realize that it's not... It's not that person, it's not that pressure, it's not that context, it's not that circumstance that's causing the problem. The problem is that there's a battle that's already going on, a tug of war of sorts in your own heart, where you're wanting, if you will, multiple things, right? I mean, you think about when you go, when you set your mind on something, I mean, you want one thing, but it's not just normally one thing, right? It's, it's one thing, but it's a lot of things. I want that because it's tied to this, because it's tied to that, and I really want that. And sometimes the things that we want, we don't even realize, but they contradict and compete with other things that we want. We want this, we want this, we want this, and that battle is raging. And then what happens in the midst of that battle in your own heart taking place, then to make, to complicate things from your standpoint or my standpoint, some other person gets in our way and says, well, that's not what I want at all. Right? I mean, there's, there, in other words, it's as if there's a civil war going on in your own inner man, and then now there's a person in your life that has a whole nother set of things going on in that moment. But our tendency is to say, see, everything was fine until that person showed up. But not really. James is saying, there was a war going on already, right? Which is why, as believers, we don't need to run to the mountains. Right, We don't need to pack up our food and go out and live out in the middle of nowhere thinking that we're going to, 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 we're going to find peace. <laughs> right? You're going to carry that, that internal conflict with you. Okay? You're going to run from that job situation or you're going to want to get out of that marriage or that relationship. The problem is you're going to carry that internal conflict with you wherever you go. So James is just saying, if you want to resolve this, you've got to deal with this. Right. If you don't deal with your heart, if you don't deal with your own passions and your own pursuit of pleasure and selfish ambition and envy and jealousy and all that stuff going on within you, then it doesn't matter who you're with. You're going to have these outward struggles, right? This relational, this relational strain. James, in fact, even says his hearers murder, which is pretty strong. Right? Look at verse 2. He says, you lust and do not have, you, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, which doesn't mean that they actually were guilty of literal murder. Um, it's, although that could be true, 
I mean, it's not as if these things don't, in some cases, lead to physical violence or death, but I think more likely that what James is referring to is, is he's, he's referring more to those verbal conflicts or those relational struggles. In the same way, when we talk about battles in Congress or legal fights, uh, we understand that no one is getting killed, right, in the courtroom. But we still use the terminology of warfare and battles and arguments and fights, and yet we understand that, that, that fists rarely fly in those situations. Again, although that can happen. So we just, we just have this language of violence and warfare, which aptly describes the strife and the criticism, the misrepresentation that occurs when people use words to gain an upper hand. And again, we're not talking about fighting for the truth, or we're not talking about standing up for the innocent or those who are vulnerable. We're talking about those fights that are rooted in selfish desires. Cravings, appetites, yearnings that ignore God's glory and the good of others and are more focused on personal satisfaction. Uh, One author, uh, Daniel uh, Doriani, he has a commentary on James. He says this, says, Desires lead to fights because they are so self-centered. For example, husbands and wives easily end up fighting when resources are limited and desires are unlimited. He wants a vacation week with the boys, and she wants a new refrigerator. He says, I work hard all year. I need some fun, something to look forward to, to keep me going. She replies, but but what you spend on your hunting in one week can buy a refrigerator for the whole family, and it will last 20 years. And as for fun, are you forgetting our week at the beach next July? He replies, Yes, that refrigerator will last 20 years, but you'll want a new one in five or six. And it rained every day, and the kids squabbled constantly the last time we went to the beach. So it was hardly a barrel of fun. When a husband and a wife are arguing for their own way, they use as much truth as they can to win the argument. For example, it probably did rain, and the kids probably did squabble at the beach, They probably had lots of fun anyway, but that is all forgotten because the man is arguing for his hunting trip. When we try to get our own way, we remember history selectively. We distort the facts just a little so they favor our point of view. Then when our spouse catches us in a small distortion, that can lead to another round of animated discussions. So James is right. Selfish desires drive selfish talk and behavior, and when we chase our selfish desires, we quarrel and fight. Love and humility and sacrifice and mutual understanding go out the window. We stop praying for the church. We stop praying for the family. For the, we stop praying for, for the kingdom, and we don't take our clearly selfish desires to the Lord because the pride in that would be so undeniable. So we have this some, out, some outrageous material thing that we want, or some position, or, or maybe it's power, or maybe it's re- revenge, but the Scriptures don't provide us a model for making those kinds of petitions. Praying for things so outside of God's revealed will that we are ashamed to mention it to Him. Right? It's like, 
we, we want these things, but we're almost embarrassed to say, Lord, give me that, right? So we don't even ask due to the self-sufficiency that we know is there and due to the shame. And yet James says, some do. And yet God denies their request. You'll notice the end of verse 2. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So it almost is an afterthought. A person's prayers are directed to God, although not from a heart that is cleaving to God, who is our greatest gift. But such prayers cannot lessen frustrated evil desire. And the Lord denies the request because they ask wrongly or wickedly. Their minds are set on earthly things, and God not only doesn't answer their prayers because they are evil, but also because they would spend, think about this, they would spend his generosity on themselves. They would, as it were, simply cash in whatever they could exchange his gifts with for their idea, ideal of gain. How serious is this? Well, verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, its values, its aspirations, desires, is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James just continues the pattern. He's just saying there are two kinds of wisdom which are typified in two ways of life, or as he says here, two kinds of relationships. It's either friendship with the world or it's friendship with the Lord. And then James probes even deeper into that basic problem of self-deception and double-mindedness, reminding them of that basic reality that their active hostility toward each other is simply evidence of their conflict with God himself. As they, by their evil ways and evil pursuits, turn their back on God and have an affair with the world. And then James brings his indictment of worldly wisdom and selfish ambition to its climax with this question in verse 5. Or do you think, he says that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, he jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Which isn't a quotation of an Old Testament passage, but it, but it is James sort of condensing this entire biblical theology of the fallen human condition, sort of boiling that down. In fact, I think it's a better, a better translation here would be the one it's in the, in the, in the NIV. It's, I think it's the, it, it ought to be a small s rather than a capital S here. So the Spirit, not the little s, not big s, but the Spirit He caused, this is the NIV, it says, the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely. So the subject of the sentence is the human spirit, not God or His Spirit. And I think James's point is that Scripture testifies that human history is one long story of intense envy and selfish striving. So that, that's what we have in the Scriptures. If you want to look back at this theology going all the way back to the Old Testament, what we have is we have a record of misdirected energies. 
That's the problem. That is why people fight. That is why relationships fail. That is why people plunder other people's things. That is why people are content to watch others fail and fall. God has made us for His glory to to aspire to the glories of loving God and blessing our brothers and sisters. But rather than do that, we put our energy, and we see examples of this all through the Scriptures. Man puts his energy into vain projects, and man fans selfish desires thinking about his own glory and about loving himself more than loving God and others. Kurt Kurt Richardson says this about verse 5. He says, The natural inclination of the human spirit, especially when unguarded from the temptations of the world, is to envy. Here is the simple truth about your spiritual adultery. Without active faith, making prayer requests for wisdom from God, you will be at the mercy of your most basic desires. Destructive envy, which is as much a relational as a personal sin, will dominate the scene even of the church and inflame all sorts of quarrels and conflicts among its members. So what do we do? Well, when we see it, which we should... I mean, we ought, this ought to be so recognizable to us. Our, our, our selfishness and our pride should be so recognizable. And when we see those, those things and we see our inability to reform ourselves, we cry out to the Lord, repent, plead for mercy, and God, of course, gives grace and forgives. That's why I think he says there in verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So according to James, most conflicts are the result of sinful attitudes and desires that lead to sinful words and actions. All of us say and do self-motivated, self-centered, and sinful things, and those things all trigger conflict. And this is the way that it usually goes down. We're different, right? So we we know that we're different in that moment when we're wanting something and that other person expresses a different idea or a different agenda. So that's, that's just the starting point. We're different. But then the next thing, and this is where we go off track, is, but I'm right. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of, we don't, we don't actually say it, but I mean, I, I met with a couple yesterday uh, for counseling yesterday afternoon. The guy's in ministry. He serves on staff at a church in downtown Atlanta. It was him and his wife. They've been married for about three or four years. Lots of struggle, lots of conflict going on, and this is exactly what we were talking about. And he was just, he was just confessing, saying that he, he was one of ten growing up and coming from a uh, sort of an Asian culture background. He was the youngest of 10. And then her coming from a very different family. And he said, Joel, this is the problem is we, we are so different. He's like, we are so different. He said, the problem is, he said, I'm, I misidentify what is really sin and what's not sin. Because when we have differences, he said, my, my next thought is, but I'm right and you're sinning. <laughs> it's like that what, the, the very fact, he said, it's almost as if, he said, I had this thought. I, I said, I'm not, he said, I'm not, it's like I'm not even aware of it. But he said, I know it's, it's in my heart and in my mind 
that the disagreement itself, it, I, that what she wants from out of this and what she would do in this situation, it has to be sinful. It has to be wrong. It has to be unbiblical because I'm, I'm right, right? And he said, I'm realizing that nine out of ten times, this has nothing to, it, some, in most cases, it has nothing to do with sin. And we're not even talking about sin. We're just talking about the way that I do things and the way that she has grown up doing certain things. But it's not, in a lot of these situations, it's not even a sin issue. What becomes a sin issue is the fact that I think I'm right. That's the sin. And he said, but I'm, I'm so focused on trying to show her her sin, I'm totally blind in that moment to these things. And so it's, we're different, and then I'm right. And he said, and then the next thing is, and I've got to win. Right? I've got to win this, this argument. So where do conflicts come from? Well, they can arise from personal differences and differences of opinion. People are different from one another. They have different abilities, amounts of knowledge, likes and dislikes, different perspectives. And that is something that we need to accept as the norm. Right? I mean, that's just, we just accept that. We're going to be different. And we have to work hard to know one another and to appreciate one another and to see things from other people's perspectives. But people can have a lot in common and still have conflict if they are proud and selfish. That is to say, the problem isn't the fact that we're different. It's what we do with our disagreements. And we're all too often guilty of clinging to our own rights, demanding our way rather than choosing to lay down our rights and with humility work through difficulties with others. So the real problem, James says, is is self-exalting pride and self-serving lust or both. And this goes all the way back, folks. Again, this is why I think James is saying this. This goes all the way back to the garden. You see it all through the Bible. And again, it's not the disagreements that the Scriptures seem to put the emphasis on. It's the quarreling. That's the issue, especially, particularly in the Old Testament. It's the quarreling that is identified as the problem. In fact, some, when you get to the New Testament, some of the toughest things in the New Testament are said about people in the church who are contentious and quarrelsome. Not different, right? Again, because we accept the fact that we're different. But some of those greatest words of rebuke are towards those who quarrel and, again, are fighting for their own way. So we're going to have these natural differences, but our our flesh is really what makes conflict so destructive. When we want something but we can't get it, our, our unmet desire can work itself even deeper and deeper into our hearts. Our desire becomes a demand, something, that, something we sin in order to obtain or sin if we can't get it. Our hearts become controlled by this craving, ruled by something that we want or love, something that we serve or trust, something that we depend on for comfort. And what has really happened is this. We have made the thing we desire into an object of worship. We've elevated our desire into a false god or what the Bible calls an idol. And that's why we often say that the sinful root of conflict is really idolatry. It's a covetousness. 
It's a, in this case, as James points out, it's, it's a form of spiritual adultery, a forsaking of Christ to whom we are devoted and espoused to cleave to other things. And so it's, it's this, we call it the regression of an idol, right? It's, it starts here. It's just a simple I want, right? I desire something, but it quickly goes to this. I need, right? I can't have peace. I can't have joy. I can't be happy unless I have this thing or a sense of I deserve this. And then it goes from there to I demand this. Now, I've got, I, I think that I deserve it. I believe I deserve it. I need to have it. And now we just start looking around and people then become, rather than, people are no longer individuals that we look at to serve or to love, but they become instruments, right? Tools or obstacles, right? If they stand in the way, they're an obstacle or they become an instrument. They'll help me to get this thing that I want. And so we began to demand that. And guess what? If people do not bow down to our idols, then we do what? We judge. Or you might put here, criticize. So we, we get into this. We, we have to prove to these people in our life that our list of things is the list of things. Right? We want, it's as if we've taken out the commandments of God and we've come up with our, we've got our 10 commandments, our 10 expectations, and we're saying, forget about those other, this is what you need to be doing. You need to be helping me to get what I want. And so we, in order to gain that victory, we have to belittle and to criticize what they believe, what they want in that moment. And eventually, it's this right here. If you're not gonna, if you're not gonna help me get what I want, then I'm going to make you pay for it. That can be physical abuse, or it can just be the silent treatment for three days, right? It can just be that when I see you at church, I'm going to just turn the other way and ignore you. Or it could be slander. It could be I'm going to spread some things about you that I know to be true, but that really I have no business talking about with others, but I'm going to do these things as a form of making you pay and hopefully, in a, in a way, breaking your will, right? And the world cheers us on as we do this, echoing back to us what our flesh is already saying. You deserve it. Stand up for yourself. Don't be a doormat. Get even. Or as we see on the billboards. Uh, ben hit, call Neil Flit. Right? It's just reta- it's just, just you man, you've suffered. You need somebody to stand in your corner. Been hurt, call Kurt. All these attorneys all these attorneys have their names just always seem to just, it just works. It just works. You gotta have a certain name to be a, an attorney to be able to pull that off. But we love those messages, right? We don't we don't even need the devil's help, we don't even need the world's help because James says all this is going on in our hearts. And what we need to do, folks, is look to God. Returning Him to His rightful first place in our lives, deciding that we want His will for us above any other desire, replacing our agenda with His agenda, not trying so hard to convince others to see things our way, not trying to, almost like a sense of urgency that we've got to straighten this thing out, but trusting that God can and will do his work. 
So why is it important for us to know all this, to know what conflict is, to know what the, that God is sovereign over it and that he uses it for his purposes? Why is it important for us to understand the benefits of conflict and to know what causes it? Not just so that we can resolve it when it happens, but so that in some cases we can avoid it. <laughs> because in that moment when there's a disagreement or a difference, that's when we ought to be looking here, right? There's a lot of stuff that can be prevented if we'll just stop and say, what am I worshiping? (laughs) Why is this getting to me? Why is my blood pressure going up? You know, why am I having that thought? If we can just begin to say, what is it that I want so bad that I'm willing to trample this person or talk about this person or run this person over, steamroll this person? Or ignore this person? What is it that I want so bad in this moment that I'm willing to sin against my Lord in order to achieve it, to get it? Or what is it that I want so bad that if this situation or this person and their agenda seems to be threatening that thing? Because maybe it's something that you already have. You want something and you actually already have it, and now this person is. It's not that they're keeping you from it. It's that something that they do or they want is threatening to take from you something that you really love. And in that moment, you go down this road. And I'm saying, if you could catch yourself right here and examine your heart, say, what is it? What is it that I want so bad that I'm willing to sin in this moment to protect it or to obtain it? you wouldn't get into a lot of these things. (laughs) I wouldn't get into a lot of these situations in my own life. So in some cases, it's so we can avoid conflict. And then, unfortunately, there are times that it's, it's already been fully carried out, right? I mean, we have blown it. We've gone down this road and, and now we're looking back at it. And it's really an issue of how do we resolve that? And again, the path to resolving conflict, you still have to go back and figure this out, right? Or else it's just, it's just putting a Band-Aid on it, right? And we, do, we don't do a good job at that either, right? Confessing and repenting, we oftentimes just confess the, the, the behavior or the action or the words, and we never get really back to this thing here, this craving or this ruling desire. And if we don't, folks, we're just going to keep tripping over it. We're just going to keep... Keep making this mistake over and over and over again if we can't isolate and identify what that is. So next time we'll we'll do that. We're going to start looking at, in some cases, how to avoid a conflict. And and then when these things have actually begun, conflicts have have begun or have been fully carried out, we're going to talk about how how to reconcile. How do you get into that conversation what are the biblical, biblical steps we take in order to, once that there's been a breach in that in trust or a breach in that relationship of some kind with another person, how do we begin to take steps that will pave the way for, for peace? And uh, so we'll talk about that, whether you're the person that has sinned or whether you're the person that has been sinned against. There are responsibilities on both sides, and we'll walk through those scenarios and I said, we'll, we'll come back at the very end of the month of August uh, and talk about conscience issues. And uh, I just encourage you to pay attention, uh, pay close attention to the sermons in the next couple of weeks because a lot of that ground is going to be covered as we go through Romans 14 and 15. Okay? All right, folks, thank you so much for your time.